the shortest letter to maybe the smallest church. That's Thyatira. Okay, uh, what about Thyatira? Let's give us some background on this. John in sending Revelation through the seven churches followed how the main road went. That's the reason why Thyatira is number four on the list there. It, it, it follows a, a circular pattern from Ephesus all, Ephesus all the way around and back back over through Laodicea, okay? Thyatira was located 40 miles east of Pergamum. Pergamum was a major city back then uh, and still is today in modern-day Turkey. Uh, it is on the south side of the Lycus River, so uh, it was right by the riverside there. Now, then some interesting factoids on this. Thyatira meant unceasing sacrifice. Now, that doesn't mean our religious basis. Um, one of the solutions, one of, one of the major generals of, of Greece founded it, and he founded it because it was sort of uh, a blockade as it were, an outpost to protect Pergamum. As a result, this city that was founded about third century AD was destroyed and rebuilt at least three times between the third century AD and uh, the first century when this was being written by John, okay? Uh, it was a manufacturing center, a matter of fact, uh, Lydia, who we see there in Acts the 16th chapter, was from Thyatira, and uh, she was what? What was her occupation? Anybody remember that? Good, Chuck, a seller of purple. And that would be consistent with what was happening at Thyatira. Thyatira was a major textile center and metalworking center, so much so that the trade guilds were, were what basically ran the town. Uh, so, so much so, I, I, I have a commentary by one of our brethren on, on the seven churches, and he calls this Jimmy Hoffaville. Now, you have to be a little bit older to appreciate the fact, you know, Jimmy Hoffa was the, the founder of the Teamsters, and he was involved in labor. Matter of fact, uh, uh, He's one of the urban legends up in North Jersey, where I came from, <laughs> or around that area. Try to find out where he was buried at. <laughs> he died an untimely death at the hands of the mob, they think. And uh, they, they think it, that he's at the uh, north end of Giant Stadium there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but the thing about was, with the trade guilds and the uh, unions there, that set up something spiritually that's rather unique. Now, now this is a little bit uncertain area there. Most of the towns back then, they actually could find them by when they excavated them. If it was a major town, it would have a temple to some deity, to some god or goddess, okay? Uh, at Ephesus, it would be what? Diana was the big deity there. 
Thyatira doesn't seem to have a big deity. Uh, some archaeologists seem to think that uh, there was a, a lady, I think her name was Samastas, Samastane or something like that, some name that we probably can't pronounce and don't want to remember. She was the queen of fortune telling. <laughs> it's like, you know, have your palm read for 10 bucks or whatever. I don't know. But they had that there and, and they they think that there may might not have been any major temple. The reason, the reason why there's a question mark here is that they're looking for a major temple. The one place they can't look is there's an old mosque, which is obviously the center of worship for the Islamic community around that area. And supposedly legend says it's built on top of an old temple. And guess what? You don't excavate underneath a mosque, not out in that, that neck of the woods. That's why the Israelites, they stay away from the, the temple mount there because that's a holy place for Islam. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about a town where the trade union unions actually ran everything. Matter of fact, they think that, that the, the problem was that these trade unions actually were the centers of worship. And that's not a good thing because to have a job, what do you have to do? You have to worship the way that the trade union says you have to worship. And guess what? In Thyatira, if you didn't worship the way that you were supposed to worship or who you're supposed to worship, according to your trade union, you were in big trouble. So like getting the, getting the shot a while back, you know, either you get it or you're out, you know, you don't have a job. <laughs> what about this? When we're reading there, we have a picture of Christ. And this is interesting because the only time in the book of Revelation that talks about Christ as the Son of God is right here at Thyatira. The picture is one of judgment. Would somebody get for me Daniel, the 10th chapter in verse 6? This is going to sound an awful lot like the description of Jesus Christ there that's given to the church at Thyatira. Daniel 10 and verse 6. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Okay. Why give that picture of Jesus Christ? Here's some things to think about on this thing, Okay. That the thing about his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. There's two facts that the church at Thyatira needed to realize. Matter of fact, these are the same two facts, I think. A lot of our brethren need to understand, and matter of fact, all of our brethren need to understand and appreciate today. Fact number one eyes like burning fire. God knows. Christ sees everything, okay? His arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. In other words, it's, uh, it, it's hot. What he's saying is he's, he not only sees everything, he's coming quick. 
he will judge you. And that's that's part of the thing that he deals with in the next section in verses 19 through 23. There's some praise given to Thyatira. What praise was given there in verse 19? What did they do? Number one, they had faith, didn't they? They had patience. He said, I, I know your faith, you have patience, you have good works. And what you're doing now is greater than what you've done before. You're growing, okay? One of the things we need to realize, and, and the unfortunate thing about, about religious groups in this country is they have a preoccupation about trying to reach people on felt needs because that's the most important thing in church growth, okay? The most important thing in church growth, brethren, is preaching and teaching Jesus Christ. Because when, you, when something becomes more important than Christ in the church, if, if something is more important than the head of the body, then the body is not in very good shape. And we need to understand that and appreciate that. So they have a pretty good resume, but were they perfect? Answer, no. Matter of fact, there are some big problems there. We see there, beginning verse 20, they talk about somebody by the name of Jezebel. By the way, have you ever met somebody named Jezebel? They don't give out the name Judas that much either. Why? <laughs> because you don't want to give somebody a bad name from, from the very beginning. What was Johnny Cash's song about? A boy named what? <laughs> Sue. It's like, no. <laughs> You don't want to do that. What did Jezebel signify? Evil, yeah. Matter of fact, she was wickeder than wicked and eviler than evil, okay? Uh, 400 prophets of, of Baal lost that competition, didn't they? They lost it to Elijah and they were killed and here, here comes Elijah, and what, what, what does he say? He starts talking to Jezebel, and Jezebel said, may I be like those prophets also if, 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 if you're not dead by the time the sun goes down. And of course, that was, I guess that was Elijah's cue to head on out. She's one of the main characters in the book of First Kings here, at least from chapter 16 on. It's not talking about Jezebel literally. This is one of the problems that people have in dealing with the book of Revelation, okay? They talk of, they use a big word, apocalyptic literature. It just means that God's revealed something. You know, it's something that was behind a curtain you open the curtain up, it's like, okay, I see that. But the idea that it deals with pictures, it deals with symbols. Without get, belaboring this point, she was symbolic of somebody in the church 
that was spreading false teaching and sedition. The word sedition, at least in the New King James Version there, or in the Old, old King James, is talking about deception there. Okay, what was the result? There is sexual immorality in, in, in Thyatira. They would eat things sacrificed to idols. There is false worship. These are the trade guilds coming to play there. And then in verse 21, what does it say? The Lord gave her time to repent, but she refused. Let me go back in the book of Revelation and share a little sidelight with you. This idea of repentance is important. Are, are you dealing with Revelation 16, your lesson, by the way? I don't want to step on Chuck's foot. Okay. And I'll, I'll, I'll stay away from repentance after this illustration, okay? Because I know you'll do a good job on that. Turn back in the book of Revelation for a second. Revelation 16, I believe. If I can get her opened in here. Okay. I got I got a Bible that has new gilt in it, new gilded pages, and they're sticking together. Okay. Getting there. Now it's interesting here. This is about repentance, but the context there is uh, what's the biggest hailstone that anybody's ever seen out here? You don't get hailstones out here? We got them back in Pennsylvania. Matter of fact, before we left Pennsylvania, what happened was they had a big hailstorm up in Danville. And the hailstones were so big that they actually filled a cup, a teacup or a coffee cup. And you, you better believe they did some damage. Hey, we're getting there. Well, I'll just allude to this here and there, okay? Well... It talks about the seventh angel pouring out his bowl of wrath there. And the voice came from heaven, it's done. Well, <laughs> the great sea was divided in, into three parts there in verse 19, verse 20. Every island fled away. The mountains were not found. Boy, I'll tell you something, okay? I don't want to be around there. Uh, we're looking at, my wife and I are looking, Lynn and I are looking at some things about creation and what happened during the flood. I wouldn't like to have been on around there. I think the ark was probably the only safe place for man or, be, or beast at that time. Okay, but look at what's happening there. In verse 21, great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. How much do you think a talon weighed? How many in here weigh more than 120 pounds? I got to be the first one to put up my hand. <laughs> How many lay what? 
are less than 120 pounds. Nobody, nobody knows what their weight is, right? <laughs> a talent was 120. Can you imagine a 120 pound hailstone? Now this is, I'm, I'm making something literal that's figurative, but here's, here's all this great, all these great acts of judgment, huge hailstones coming down. The, the, the mountains are falling away. The great city is being divvied up. And it says there at the end of verse 21, men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail since that plague was exceedingly great. I don't know about you, but if that was happening to me, I'd be doing some serious praying at that time. They didn't want to repent. And what's the problem with old Jezebel? She didn't want to repent. The Lord gave her time to repent, but she didn't. And the condemnation came. This is something that we need to understand. Can you imagine being in the early church? I know Chris has done a good job of this in the book of Acts. Kudos for that. What, 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 about, what about Ananias and Sapphira? What do you think was the reaction? What was the buzz among the brethren there back in the first century after they heard about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? I don't know about you, but when the collection plate was passed, I guarantee you that people were a lot more serious about giving than, than they were before. Great fear came upon the brethren. But yet at the same time there, Luke also says that many people were reached because of that. And yet Jezebel, God gave her time to repent. She refused to do it. And, and, and what happens? There's a physical penalty here. Well, you know, that's the exception. Really? Sometime if you get a chance, take a look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Now, most of us, most of the guys that serve at the table know that that end part of 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about the Lord's Supper. And Paul says there's some of you that sleep because of their... their their malpractice of the Lord's Supper. Remember, I mentioned this the other day when we were talking about Hebrews, the 10th chapter. The idea of the Lord's Supper and baptism are alluded to there in, in, in verses 19 through 21. And then at the end of that section there, verses 24 through 25, what is it talking about? In the verse 26. Don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together, such as is the manner of custom some. I appreciate the, the men here wanting to have a time of meditation and thought and prayer after we take the Lord's Supper. And we need to be thinking about that before we take the Lord's Supper. But you know, the interesting thing about that is, brethren, 
This is serious business. And if we don't take that serious, if we don't aren't serious about what happened when we're baptized, we're not going to take our Christianity seriously. I'm not saying you can never smile <laughs> or have a spirit of rejoicing or passion or, or be happy. But the thing about that is there was some physical condemnation during the early church, wasn't there? Made them think. What about Jezebel and all her, quote, children, all her followers? Yep. God was going to deal with that. God will judge. In Luke, the 16th chapter, verse 15, somebody want to read that for me? Here, the context is Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and the, the one thing that the Pharisees didn't want to hear about, and that is about money. Okay. Anybody got Luke 16, verse 15? You are they which justify yourselves before men. Thank you. Well read. Now we need to think well on it. What's the, fr the first key point there is God knows your hearts. Is that true today? Think about that. At the end of John, the second chapter, John has something interesting there. He, he said that Jesus would not entrust himself to any, to any man. Why? Because he knew what was on their hearts. Does God know what's on our hearts right now? Yep. Does God know what's on our hearts when we're praying? Yes. When we're singing? Yes. When we're giving, oh, definitely. <laughs> when we're taking the Lord's Supper, absolutely. <clears throat> Old preaching buddy of mine said that nobody makes it to heaven by accident. It requires forethought and foreaction. And then it requires after action. <laughs> for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which he, meaning God, prepared beforehand. That sounds, yeah, Ephesians 2 verse 10. So the idea there is God had had some compliments for him. But they also had them some problems. The key to all this, if you walk out of here with anything, knowing anything other than what, what this one point is, here's the one thing to remember. The Lord knew what was going on there. You can put lipstick on a pig, but does that change the pig? Uh-uh. They could lift my face and tuck my tummy and do all this other crazy stuff that they like doing. Does that change Bill? <laughs> Not unless Bill wants to be changed. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm stepping on your toes again, brother. 
This is the key. The idea is we're not going to change. We're not going to want to change. Well, I'll leave that up to Chuck. <laughs> so there it is. The longest letter out of those seven comes to what may have been the smallest congregation out of the seven, but had the biggest problem. What does God think about compromise? Compromise is what? The P word, poison. It is deadly. You do not compromise what this book says. So here's here in this next section, verses 24 through 28, is the most concise answer to the greatest problem that we'll have when it comes to applying and practicing the truth, and that's compromise. The who there, in verse 24, it talks about the rest who do not know this doctrine or the deep things of Satan. What are the deep things of Satan? Well, guess what? I don't want to know about that. I don't want to know that one bit. I want to know the deep things of God. I don't want to know the deep things of Satan. Now, you have some Amish folk around here, don't you? I know there's a lot of them down around Inola. Out where we're at in Pennsylvania, uh, we used to go to a place over around, what is it, Middleburg, wasn't it, honey? Uh, it was a surplus food place. We used to call it the Amish Walmart. They actually had a, had covered, covered barns and hitching, hitching posts for their horse and buggies there. <laughs> okay. Wasn't operated by the Amish, it was operated by somebody that, well, once removed from the Amish, Church of the Brethren. But a lot of Amish around there, you know they have one of the strangest things. Matter of fact, I was talking to somebody about this last week. They have a ritual called Rumspringa. That's German for running around. Now it's practiced different depending on where you're at, but it's a coming of age thing. If you're a young Amish girl or boy between the ages of 14 and 21, mom and dad will say, you're out of here. They'll, they'll send them away for six months. Now the particulars on this change it's not a consistent thing as far as blanket practice. The blanket practice is this rumspringing, running around. What they'll do is they'll, they'll, they'll say to the kids, you're out of here for six months. Go and do what you want to do. Hold it for a second. I don't know about you. I don't have, that doesn't make too much sense. Matter of fact, I, I read this. You know, you used to have the, in these bookstores, this little book of Eastern Religious wisdom, uh, was it Cahel Gilbron wrote some of that stuff? And he says, well, if you own something, if you want to know if it really belongs to you, let it go. And if it comes back to you, it's yours. And if it flies away, it's not yours. Hold it, that doesn't apply to people. 
We're supposed to train up our children, parents, and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord at the most critical time in their lives when they're just beginning to have some type of critical thinking skills. You don't push them out in the world and say, go ahead and do what you want to do. Now, the Amish will proudly say, you know, that uh, I've heard guys, you know, when they're proud of stuff, you know, these old farmers with beards down to their belt, they'll grab hold of their suspenders and pull them back and say, well, my kids went to Rumspringa, but they're still faithful. Matter of fact, they statistics say, matter of fact, statistics are a crazy thing. Uh, it's a mathematical model that doesn't mean much because people tend to twist them. They say, well, 80% of our kids go out in the world and then come back. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. I had a friend of mine that had a Bible study with a couple of guys, and they were doing stuff that, that, that even the world was considered to be nasty. They went on rumspring and never came back. I don't want, for our young people, I know you're going to be just like me when I was growing up. You know, you get to a certain age, oh man, where's the keys to the car? Where's this? I need to get away. You know, I need to be with my friends. That's good. You need to understand something, okay? I found this out the hard way. I didn't realize until I had children that my parents were probably some of the smartest people that I ever had in my life. <laughs> Look at your folks. You got some fine folk here. You got some good parents. You got some and parents. You got some great kids. Don't don't think you got to do rum springer to understand about the world. You don't have to know the deep things of Satan to know the deep things of God. A lot of people say this whole thing, I'm going, getting off on a tangent here, but this is the whole issue of compromise. Well, you know, the grass is greener over there. Yeah, but, but it may be poisonous. It, it, it may be deadly for you. Don't do it. I'm sorry, I, I, I get worked up over this, but we need to get worked up over this. Here's some of the most conservative people religiously as far as actual practice and culture and lifestyle. They're out in the world, they, and they just throw them to the wolves. You don't do that. Matter of fact, this whole thing about the deep things of Satan, of some, some people that study Gnosticism, and this is what was coming on the scene towards the end of the first century, it was just a thing of religion where you had some people had deep knowledge. I know everything, so I can do anything. No, you don't do that. Do you know that one of our, our, our former presidents, his idea of prayer and forgiveness was that he thought that every night he got down on his knees and ask God to forgive him of the sins he committed that day. And this guy's theology, what he believed about the Bible was that since God forgave him, he could go out and do anything he wanted to the next day and come back and ask God 
to forgive us. Try to think of, well, what president was that? All I'm going to say is he has my first name. Okay? He has my first name. I have his, no, I don't want that. <laughs> the whole thing about this is get serious about life. Get serious about sin. And then you can rejoice in the Lord. Now, here's the key. I said all that to say this. Two words that we've been studying, hold fast. Now, I alluded to this yesterday. One use of that word meant to exercise our will. It's like I'm standing, you're not moving me. I'm not sitting down, I'm not laying down. I'm not gonna be a Christian couch potato. I'm gonna stand fast, okay? It is not optional. The other word, and that's the one used here and in Hebrews 4.14 and 6.18, it carries the idea of power, the exercise of somebody's will, maybe even over another person, uh, to seize something, to seize and hold on. Let me illustrate this real quickly, okay? Back in the summer of 1975, I was, uh, I was sort of the catch-all minister for the Clawson Church of Christ out in Michigan. That was uh, between the first and second year of my preacher training school then. I know that's back in 1900 and I forget, but that's another story. And here's the thing. I had the youth group, uh, one of the, one of the members there, she was a school bus driver. She got a school bus for us as a freebie and paid for the gas and said, look, we'll do something special for the kids. So I don't know if you've heard of this amusement park, it's called Cedar Point. It's on a little island out in Lake Erie off of Sandusky, Ohio. It's considered to be the roller coaster capital of the world. Now, I was going there and I had to chaperone about a half dozen kids. We sort of divvied them up. We had about 18, 24 kids. I had six kids. They wanted to go on the roller coaster. Little background, very quickly. Uh, I saw something that happened on a roller coaster in Wildwood, New Jersey called the Wild Mouse. And that, that night, the Wild Mouse got real wild because I was within about 30 feet of watching, watching this little thing as a two-person roller coaster almost go off the tracks. Now that, that shook me a little bit because I wasn't a roller coaster person. <laughs> so I'm watching this and the kids say, Mr. Dills, Mr. Dills, come on, come on. I want to go on the roller coaster. Okay, great. Oh. I got up my nerves. So I, I looked at it, I kept looking at people and they're screaming and yelling. They're even screaming and yelling when they got off, but they weren't dead. So I figure if it doesn't kill me and it doesn't kill them, I can do it. I got on and guess what? They put me in the first car. I was the only person by himself in the first car. It goes up that first hill, you know, click, 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 click. Gets to the top and it's like, whoa, that really, that really does drop, doesn't it? And I'm going down there, 
Unbeknownst to me, the lap bar that holds you down on that car didn't work on my seat. And everybody's yelling and screaming. I think, man, this is a neat thing. All of a sudden, I realize I'm halfway out of the seat and getting further out of the seat. And the girls behind me are screaming louder than anybody else. They figure they're going to get a lap full of me. I said, I want to fall off this thing. I, I, I tried to lock it again. I pulled myself down there and I held on to that lap bar for the rest of the ride. Matter of fact, urban legend has it that my handprints are still in that lap bar. You want to talk about holding fast. I was holding on for dear life. Now, thinking about me on that roller coaster would be a chuckle. Thinking about me being faithful to God, that's not a chuckle. That's serious stuff, isn't it? It's life or death. I know a lot of my, my, my dear, beloved brethren that haven't held on. Chuck, Russ, myself, maybe even you, you know brothers and sisters that used to be faithful. But I don't want to be used to be Christian. If you're a Christian, decide you're holding on for dear life. It is not optional. The word hold fast is an imperative. It's a command and it's in the past tense. Anytime you have the past tense, I'll use a technical term, aorist here, but you have the aorist imperative it's like what I shouted out the other day. Sorry about that. About, oh, come here. It's like, hey, you do it now. He's not saying hold fast later. He says you do it right now and you don't forget about doing it right now. What is the when about this? Until I come. It has an indefinite article there. You know, it's sort of like what it talks about there in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And of course, there in Philippians, the fourth chapter, beginning verse five, running through verse six, the, the Lord is at hand in Hebrews 13, 11. The time is short. Well, it's been 2000 years. Yeah, but we don't know when he's coming. It's indefinite. That's what it says. And it says what? Hold fast. How long? Until I come. I even believe that when he does come, we'll never let go of Jesus. But you hold fast because somebody wants you to let go. And we know who that somebody is. But then there's this promise to overcomers. I know we're running out of time here. Back where, back where my stomping grounds were, we were right next to Pennsylvania. And in the 70s, the Pennsylvania Lottery uh, got a high-powered ad agency from around Philadelphia to give a little slogan for the Pennsylvania Lottery. You know what that slogan is? It's okay to play. I'm telling you, that's not true. 
That's what Satan, oh, it's okay to play. It's okay to do this. It's okay to do that. You don't have to worry about, I mean, your parents say that, but it's, hey, that's, it's no problem. But it is. It talks about power there. The Lord's going to judge. He's going to have a rod of iron there. Christ's strength and victory makes us who we are. Hold fast. The best is yet to come, brethren. It talks about Christ ruling here. It's sort of interesting. The, rule, the word rule there is translated shepherd in other passages. And that rod iron, it talks about that later on in Revelation, Revelation 12, 5 and 19, 15. We talked about that. In fact, Chris had a good exposition of that with the thing about a goad. The other end of the shepherd's crook, shepherd's staff was sometimes metal and had a point sometimes. And God, God's in control. Finally, it talks about the morning star. That's mentioned all the way back in the Old Testament. You know that? Numbers 24, 17, 1 Peter 1, 19, and Revelation, finally, 22, 16. What's this thing about a morning star? There's an interesting picture in that. You know, the thing about a morning star is, matter of fact, some people say that that might be um, Mercury or Venus. Morning star is really visible only one time during the night, and that's just before the dawn. Things were dark back then, but there's a light, isn't there? There's a light there. Well, what's the conclusion? At the end, he has in the air, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word here is important in the Old Testament. I mentioned that it's the word Shema, but it doesn't just mean hear or listen. The assumption was the Jewish mindset, if you heard something, if you listened to it, you would practice it. You would do it. Matter of fact, the word Shema is used and translated for the word obey in the Old Testament. So you need to listen. What's my last word? Beware of compromise. There's two big words here. I'll give them to you quickly. One is eclecticism. Wow. They might, uh, I know uh, we homeschooled our kids. Matter of fact, uh, I almost looked at getting them into McGuffey's eclectic reader. You know what eclecticism is? It means getting the best and putting together. Well, for McGuffey's reader, that would be good. But for the Bible, hold it for a second. Some of us are old enough to remember. Remember the Reader's Digest came out with a version of the Bible? Thumbs down on that. They want to condense secular literature or, or things like that. That's fine. You want to condense this thing down. You're dealing with what John talked about at the end of Revelation, Revelation 22, 18, and 19. You're not going to add to, you're not going to take away from this word. That's the key. No eclecticism. You don't cherry pick what's in this book. Number two, syncretism. That's another big word. 
It means to mix things together. Okay, you mix bad and good. You want to eat something where somebody mixed in poison with something that's good? Matter of fact, that's what rat poison is. It's cornmeal with strychnine in it. Oops. <laughs> oh, but it's only half of 1%. That's right. That's But only half of 1% strychnine in cornmeal makes rat poison. It kills rats. How much bad stuff can you put in with truth to make it air? The answer is anything. See, you leave it out. You leave it out. I have a long illustration here from Edward Gibbon. He wrote the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. You know what? You know why Rome fell? It fell morally. Our country needs to wake up on that one. But it fell because Rome had the strongest army probably in the ancient world. And we see that. It, Paul actually uses an analogy in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, to that armor. But you know what happened? Why did Rome's army fall? Because that armor would weigh between 60 and 100 pounds. And Roman soldiers were required to wear their armor all the time. Because if they took it off, they'd get used to not wearing it. Well, guess what? Soldiers start complaining. First off, they, 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 they went in a battle out wearing a helmet. Doesn't make much sense. Then they took their breastplate off. Didn't make much sense. They had this long javelin, seven foot long. Sometimes it'd take two guys to wield it, called a pylum. Boy, that is deadly. A short sword. Boy, those are deadly. Guess what? We're not taking them into battle. Ephesians 6, 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. What about you? Are you standing <laughs> for Jesus? I'm not talking about posture here. I'm talking about doing God's will. Hold fast. Do not compromise truth. Thank you.